1: Jews, it's very unusual for them to be in any country where they're wanted. They're always not wanted, except in Israel. I and mean, even in Israel, they don't want them there either. It's other people, don't. The UN doesn't want them now there. The UN has made this big historic vote. They said that they voted, including the United States, voted to condemn Israel for building the settlements. Not, they're not wanted by the world, even to be in that little sliver of land. Only one country stood with Israel. You know what country that was? It wasn't Costa Rica. <laughs> Australia. That's the only country that stood with poor Israel. We're in deep trouble. Anyway, and so he says, Psalm 119, I am a stranger in the earth. That's how we should think of ourselves. Hebrews eleven thirteen was as we talked about that. So this truth that God would visit Joseph's people and bring them out is so important that his deathbed words, he got them promised. He says, I want you to promise, pledge, make an oath. In Genesis 50, verse 25, and Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, "God will surely visit you, and you 'll carry up my bones from hence, so keep a good watch over my bones. Now, Joseph said on his deathbed that he wanted an oath from them, so that they understood that God was going to visit them and take them out, and as comfortable as Joseph was in Egypt in as high a position as Joseph had in Egypt, Joseph knew Egypt's not my home or the home of his people, and God's going to visit us and take us out. And what was so important to Joseph was that his bones should be taken out, and when they do, he said, I want you to think about that, and remember that God promised that he's going to visit and take you out. And sure enough, God did take them out, and when they left, it was Moses Moses said, get the bones of Joseph. <laughs> well, it's a paraphrase. But in verse, uh, Exodus 13, 19, it says, and Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. I don't know, maybe he carried them along in his satchel. I don't know. For he had straightly sworn the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you'll carry up my bones from hence. Can you imagine Moses? He's walking along. He said, get those bones. I got to get those bones. I got to get the bones of Joseph before we leave. One last thing I got to get. You guys get the matzah, I'll get the bones. <laughs> and he says, because God's going to visit and take an oath. Okay, someone said, but those bones are 400 years old. And he says, get the bones. He get the bones. And as they carried those bones out, and as he's carrying those bones out, we can see Moses saying, you know, by carrying these bones of Joseph, I can hear him speak from the bones. And he's saying, God will surely visit us. And I'm carrying these bones because we took an oath as his people, to carry his bones out. So here we go, Joseph, we're taking your bones out. And when we die, it will be God visiting us to take us out of the world. Just like he took Stephen out of the world when he visited him in Acts 7, 55 and 59. It says, he was full of the Holy Ghost. He looked up steadfastly unto heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, behold, I see heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God and then the Jews, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears, wouldn't listen, ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him, and witnesses laid their feet at the young man Saul's feet, and they stoned Stephen, calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You know why Stephen said, receive my spirit? Because the Lord Jesus was there, and he saw the Lord Jesus with his open arms receiving his spirit at his death. See, he'd come to visit him. The Lord Jesus had come to visit him. You've been in a hospital room of a Christian, and when he's passing from this life to the other life, you can almost sense the presence of God because God comes to do that himself. And this visit by God was what Joseph had told his people, and it became, over the 400 years that they were in Egypt, a longing in Egypt. It was the message that came to to Moses that he was supposed to tell the Jewish people when he went back to them as their leader. And God said to to Moses, he said in Exodus 3.16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, appeared unto me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And so when the Jewish people heard that, that God had visited them, they had one response, which was Exodus 4.31. And the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked upon their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. And that's the response of God's visitation. Bow the head and worship. And when you and I come to God alone in the morning for our time, our quiet time with God, and we start to read the Bible, and we come to really sense God is visiting me, In this quiet time, we have one response like the Jewish people, and that's to bow the head and just worship and just simply say, Lord Jesus, I worship you, just like the Jewish people when they realized that God visited them. So what we have seen is that when God delivered Israel from Egypt, it's described as God visiting Israel. What do all these expressions mean? What are they teaching us about this visiting and deliverance? That God does not take us out of trouble by remote control. But God delivers us personally by coming to us and visiting us. That's the great meaning behind the name of Jesus when it says in Matthew 1.21, she shall bring forth a son unto us. A child is born. Unto us a son is given. He came. And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior. He is the deliverer. How does he deliver? By visiting sinners in their great need. God's deliverance cannot be separated from God's visitation. That's why King David said in Psalm 106, verse 4, Remember me, O Lord, with thy favor that thou bearest unto thy people. O visit me with thy salvation." And we remember that the word saved and salvation, that's the word Yeshua or Jesus. So when the Jewish people say to me that Jesus does not appear in the Old Testament, I say, oh, yes, it does. It's translated salvation. Here it is. He's the visitor. He's the deliverer. He's the Savior. He's the Yeshua. He's Jesus. And when we're saved from our sins, God saved us with his salvation, with his Jesus. And then there was the priest Zacharias. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, he was the heralder of the coming of this Messiah. And he could not speak. He was made dumb until John the Baptist was born. And when he first spoke, he described what God had done in bringing Israel, bringing Israel the Lord Jesus Christ. It was remarkable he describes in such few words so many things that God did when he says in Luke 1, 68, it says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited Israel and redeemed his people. That describes God's visitation. That described God's redemption. And hath raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David. That describes God's salvation. As he spake, that describes God's faithfulness in the mouth by his holy prophets. That describes God's prophecy, which hath been since the world began. That we should be saved. That describes God's purpose, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all them that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. That describes God's covenant of mercy. You know that song we sing sometimes in the breaking of bread time? Of covenant mercy I sing. That's where it comes from. The covenant was a covenant of mercy. The oath which he swore to our father, that describes God's personal pledge that he should grant it to us that we be delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. That describes God taking us as his peculiar treasure, personal treasure. In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life, and thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation, that describes God's knowledge, unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God that describes God's chested loving kindness, whereby the day spring on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness in the shadow of death. That describes God's light to guide our feet into the way of peace. So Zacharias here describes bringing God's redemption, salvation, faithfulness, fulfillment of his prophecy, accomplishment of his purpose, covenant mercy, personal pledge, making us his peculiar treasure, God's knowledge, his loving kindness, his life. He describes all this by one word, visiting his people. He visited his people and all this came. God has one way of salvation, and that's by visiting a lost person and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's salvation and blessing to all men are all described as him visiting us because God's salvations and all of his blessings are in a person. The Lord Jesus Christ is God's one-stop shop <laughs> for all his blessings. <laughs> if we have him, we have it all. We have it all. We don't need the ordinances of the church, as one person in Utah was telling me yesterday that he's going to get to heaven because he's getting all the ordinances of the church. That's why it's so important to see that when God delivers and he saves man, it's described by our word in Genesis 21.1 as God visiting man. And you remember the time when the great crowd is shouting Hosanna and the procession of the people are going with the Lord Jesus Christ. They're on their way to Jerusalem. And it was Palm Sunday. And it was a joyful time. And he's heading out there toward Jerusalem. And he comes up just over the hill. And as he gets to that hill and he sees Jerusalem and the city just fills his eyes. And as it fills his eyes, he stops and he looks at the city and he lets the sight of the city of Jerusalem fill his soul. And then and it's joyful. Everybody's, oh, they're so happy. They're rejoicing. They're shouting, Hosanna. And then something astounding happens. Right in the middle of that, he starts to cry. And he weeps. And the crowd is astonished. This is like, should be the happiest day of his life. He's being recognized as the Messiah, as God. And he's crying and the crowd is just stunned, and they're silent, and then he speaks, and he tells them what he sees, and he says, I see Jerusalem. He says, I see Jerusalem surrounded by the enemy's trench. They've dug a trench all around it. I see Jerusalem under siege. I see Jerusalem being leveled to the ground with not one stone left upon another, and he cries because of all that he saw that the jewish people had and lost and it broke his heart and he describes the reason in luke 19:41 and when he was come near he beheld the city and wept over it saying if thou hadst known even thou at least in this thy day the things which belong unto thy peace but now they're hid from thine eyes for the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee around and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and lay thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. Why? Because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. What was the reason? The reason, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. They didn't know that when the Lord Jesus Christ came to them, it was God coming to them. Like it says in Isaiah seven fourteen, Therefore the Lord himself shall give thee a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So when the Lord Jesus Christ came, that was God coming to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the Lord Jesus Christ coming to visit the Jewish people. And when the Jewish people saw the Lord Jesus Christ, they had a response in John 1.11. He came unto his own, his own received him not. And they had that response because of uh, how the song goes. They didn't know who you were. And why come they didn't know who you were? Because they didn't want to know who he was. And they despised and rejected him. And as one Filipino pastor told me, that one Jewish person told him in the Philippines, I'd rather go to hell than believe in Jesus. Now that's the ultimate description of they don't want to know who you were. And it's a tragedy the Jewish people did not know The time when God came to visit and to deliver them and to save them. And God visits the lost when he sends a Christian to talk to him about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he visits the lost when they hear the word of God and consider their own sin and the judgment and eternity and how far they are alienated away from God. And he visits the lost when he speaks to them. And that's the time for the lost to realize this is the moment of my visitation. And that's why it says in Hebrews 4, 7, again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, today, after so long a time, that is, it said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. A certain day, the day of today, that's the time of God's visitation. And what happens on that day? You hear his voice. And what's the fatal move, the fatal response for man? Harden the heart. Harden the heart. What is the life-saving move for man? Revelation 20, 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is athirst, come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. That's why the word visited in Genesis 21:1 is so important. When God delivers us from trouble, he comes by visiting us. Now it says in verse 1, next we read the phrase, I mean, verse 2. We're making progress, by the way. (laughs) We have. I just don't want you to understand. We just did cover one verse. So don't say we're not moving along. (laughs) All right. So next we see in this verse, look at 1 and 2 together. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. You see what you see in those three verses repetition, repetition, repetition. As he had spoken, as he had said, of which God had spoken to him. That statement, that concept is repeated three times to emphasize to us what happened to Sarah and Abraham was a fulfillment of what God promised to them. That's why it says in Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said and shall he not do it? Hath he spoken and shall he not make it good. See, what God says he will do, he will do. And the truth expressed by these three repetitions shows us that the long looked for finally came. It came at last. And that's what Habakkuk was saying in Habakkuk 2.3, for the vision is yet for an appointed time, or what we call here in Genesis 21, the set time. But the end, at the end, it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry. And when God makes a promise, there's something that will not happen, and that is described in 1 Samuel three nineteen, where it says, and Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and did let none of his words fall to the ground. When God makes a promise, he will let none of his words fall to the ground. And what a graphic picture that is for us, falling to the ground. He says he won't let it fall to the ground. The reason God will not let none of his words fall to the ground is because of what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. See, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's promised us. He's going to come again. And we set our hope on that, and it's a promise of his second coming. And when we're tempted to doubt if he'll come again, we think, you know, he promised that he would be resurrected from the dead in John 2. 19 through 20, he said, destroy this body in three days. I'll raise it up. This had the Jews 40 and years, temple and building, so forth. He spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said unto them, they believed the scripture which Jesus had said. He said in three days he was dead, and then he would raise his body. Did he do it? Yes. Well, I went to the garden tomb. The thing that was so impressive to me there at the garden tomb was its emptiness. <laughs> There's nothing in there because he said he would do it and he did it he said in matthew 16 18 i will build my church the gates of hell shall not prevail against it he said he built his church did he do it yes look today he promised that he's going to come back a second time in john 14 he said i go to prepare a place for you if i go prepare a place for you i'll come again receive you unto myself he said he's going to come back will he do it yes see the repetitions in verses one and two they give us this assurance we read in verse 2, Sarah conceived. She buried her son. It starts off with these words, Sarah conceived. Sarah's now 90 years old. She's just a year younger than our dear Muriel. <laughs> okay. And as far as Sarah's fertility was concerned, it's described by one word in Romans 4.19. Now being with what he considered not his own body was about 100 years old. Neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. That's the description of her fertility, deadness of her womb. Poor Sarah, it's kind of embarrassing we read this. you have to talk about her womb, but anyway. So our question is, if Sarah's womb is dead, how'd she do that? How was Sarah at 90 years old able to conceive? And the answer is, in Hebrews eleven eleven, through faith. Also, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised sarah judged god faithful who had made the promise that she'd have a child see that's a different picture of sarah than we saw before in genesis 18 where she was laughing in unbelief but now we see in hebrews 11:11, 11, 11 sarah has totally changed and now she's judging him faithful that she says i'm gonna have a baby here's the thing it's not because she saw herself as able to have children Because she saw God as able to give her children. That's the difference. She judged them faithful who had promised. And because she saw God as faithful who had promised, she received the strength and deliverance. She was past age. Very interesting for us. See, on the one hand, we see Sarah in the condition of deadness, the deadness of Sarah's womb. And then we see Sarah receiving strength to receive, conceive, and, and deliver. So after she receives the strength from God, the place of deadness, her womb, became the place of life. The little life, Isaac, comes out. And so Sarah's womb was a place of deadness, but because of God, Sarah's womb became a place of life. God brought life out of death. And that's exactly what he said about us in Ephesians 2.1. You hath he made alive, or quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. In Colossians 2.13, you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened, or made alive, together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. So just as Isaac was brought out of to life, God brought us out of death into life. As it says in Psalm 107, 14, he brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death. And the Jewish people in the slavery in Egypt, the land of Egypt was a land of death. As it says in Exodus 122, Pharaoh charged all of his people saying, every son that is born, you shall cast into the river and every daughter you save alive." life. See, whenever a Jewish woman became pregnant, she was marked out by the Egyptians, and they would watch her. And when they saw she delivered her son, the Egyptians would go grab that little Jewish boy and fling him into the Nile River. And the Jewish people would just stand helpless and watch in a hopeless despair as they just watched their newborn Jewish baby boys floating dead down the river being eaten by the crocodiles, washed up on those little corpses on the side of the shore. And there was nothing that the Jewish people could do. Why? Because Egypt had become a place of death. The land of Egypt was a land of death to them. So when God brought the Jewish people out of Egypt, he was bringing them out of death. God was bringing the Jewish people out of death into life. The land of Egypt was a land of death. And there was a particular phrase that's used 81 times in the Bible, and that phrase is, out of the land of Egypt. And that phrase, out of the land of Egypt, is so important because it emphasizes how God brought Israel out of death to life. As a matter of fact, God chose that term to identify himself when he gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus 22. He said, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And he continually referred to himself as the person who brought Jewish people out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of death. And in 1 Kings 8:16, 16, since the day that I brought forth my people, Israel, out of Egypt. The phrase out of Egypt or out of the land of Egypt is important for us because John 5:24 is our out of the land of Egypt verse where it says, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Passed from death unto life. See, in 2 Timothy 1.10, it speaks about our Savior Jesus Christ who hath abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. See, passing us from death to life, that had a cost. And that was in Romans 4.25. He was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. When Lazarus was brought forth out of his land of Egypt from death, it says in uh, John 11:44, 44, He that was dead came forth bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound with a napkin, and Jesus said unto him, Loose him, let him go. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ himself was a bringing forth out of the land of Egypt, or the land of death, to life. As it says in 2 Timothy 2, 8, that he was raised from the dead. Our resurrection is a bringing out of the land of Egypt, land of death, into life, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. The dead shall be raised incorruptible. And that's why baptism is so important, because it's symbolic of all this. As it says in Romans 6, 4, that we are buried with him by baptism and to death, and that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, even so we should walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being Our God who brings us out of our own personal land of Egypt, the land of death, and passes us from death to life, in Jesus' name, amen.